Hello and welcome to the Noise Creators Podcast. I'm your host, Jesse Cannon. This week, I'm here with Greg Dunn. Greg is an awesome guy who you may know from his band, Moving Mountains, but he's also produced some really great records for bands like Prawn and Dry Jacket. He's also done some really cool remixes for From Indian Lakes and Now Now. And he's worked on a whole bunch of other great bands. Uh, and I think he does some really, really awesome stuff. Um, I think we have a really great talk about his process and his thoughts on music. So after you listen to this, go over to his Noise Creators profile, check out his discography, his Spotify playlist, his bio, and get to know him a little bit better. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. Check it out. One second before we get started with this interview. Noise Creators is able to do these cool podcasts because we're a service and we're trying to get the word out about our service to people. So if you enjoy this podcast, it's really, really important that you share it to people so more people can get to know what we're doing trying to connect musicians with producers to make better music and make better records for you all to listen to. So please, please, please help us out. If you like this and like what we're doing, Share it, tweet it, Facebook it, Instagram it, tumble it, whatever you like to do, do that. As well, we're going to start doing a really cool thing. If there's a great quote from these podcasts that you really enjoy, put it on a graphic, tweet it, Facebook it, take a picture of it, and send it to us at Noise Creators on every single one of the social networks. And what we're going to do is we're going to share the best ones, and if you're one of the best ones... We're going to send you a list of prizes we have. We have a bunch of cool, rare things from bands that aren't as much of a use to us. We have a couple of extras of rare pressings of vinyl, all sorts of cool stuff. You can choose from a list, and we'll send that out to you for free if you share a really cool quote that we like and we use. Thanks so much for helping out, and please, please, please help us spread the word on our service. Thanks. So what's your chain for recording your voice today? Oh, uh, today I'm using... uh like a mic that I found on the floor. It was a <laughs> Neumann uh, TLM. I think it's like 103. It's one yeah, of like that, the, that's a good the, one to have on the floor. It's yeah. It's like one of the cheaper uh, you know Neumann mics. Just through like a like a Focusrite. Uh, I think it's like a two input Scarlett. One of those mobile uh, interfaces. Totally. So what's your background in music? I've been playing music just about my whole life. You eventually went to school for it. I had gone to college for for production. I spent most of that time actually touring and playing in bands. My, the school I went to was nice enough to sort of let me do my own thing while I was a student there. Uh, do you mind mentioning which school it is? I went to uh, Purchase College. Okay. Yeah, yeah, they had a they had a pretty good uh, production program there, but they also like were, had a pretty good just music program overall. There was like a lot of good punk shows and stuff like that. Nice. Yeah, I feel like I always see uh, bands playing up there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was cool. Yeah, I mean, I'd kind of been doing music forever. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't until like around college that I started to do it as an actual profession. And so tell us about how music became your profession. It, it came about mostly by my sort of stubbornness to want to do anything else. But, you know, I got into producing and sort of recording as, as a necessity, sort of as a mm-hmm. way to, you know, when I was younger, there wasn't a whole lot of other people playing music where I was from. And I was too young to sort of like play with other people. So I got into recording as a way to like just record full songs, you know, play drums, bass, guitar and sing and and put it out. And I had actually tricked a lot of people into thinking that I was older as a way of doing that. Hmm. And yeah, that was like the very start of that. 
you know, just being super interested in it and recording other friends' bands and stuff like that, I, I realized that I could maybe uh, do it for a living. So, so what did that look like in practice? So, obviously, you know, your band gets signed. Like, how does that that all seg in with like doing producing and everything? You mean like how did I, how did playing in a band get me into producing? Well, more like you, you give me a little bit more detail on how, on what the evolution has been, if you can. I guess in the case of, of moving mountains, was like that was originally you know a project of recording music. It wasn't really a band. You know, the, the drummer Nick and I ha- would just get together and we would record music, and and we just kind of made a made a made a record with, with no intentions of really being a band or anything like that. And then it went on the internet, and we are so a product of you know making a career off the internet. And then from there, you know, we were just kind of like, well, people seem to like this record we made. Maybe like let's start a band from it. And then I just just throughout that process uh, of being in a band, you know. I don't know, met lots of other bands and they were kind of like, hey, you know, Greg records music, he records bands. And it's always been a word of mouth sort of thing. Gotcha. So do you have your own studio? I don't. So what are you doing to record these days? I've always been fortunate enough to be friends with guys who own studios. And I've also like kind of realized, you know, I was kind of thinking about that the other day. I've like become sort of obsessed with the, you know, like recording music for me is, is not just about, it's, it's not, it's, you know, you're recording songs and, and that's what you're doing. You're preserving these songs, but I've kind of become obsessed with the idea that it's also like recording, you know, a time and place, much like taking a photograph is like, mm-hmm. you know, um, and that's I a great it, point that I think is pretty under discussed. Yeah. And, and, and I've kind of become obsessed with that through by accident, you know, using all these different studios. And I look back at like records I've done. And instead of always thinking about the songs, I'm always reminded of like, you know, that room that I used or like that bedroom or that, you know, you know, when we were doing the movie mountains pre-production for the last record, you know, we rented out a classroom in an abandoned high school. Huh. And I find that to be so cool that, and a lot of my favorite records that have been produced are the ones that you can like clearly sort of paint a picture of what the room sounded like or where they were when they made the record. Could you give an example of some of those records? Yeah, I think some of my favorite, you know, records that got me really interested in, into producing were like, you know, like early Appleseed cast or, mm-hmm. you know, those Ed Rose productions. He had a particular talent for that stuff. Yeah, and, and I thought that was so cool. Like, you listen to it and you're hearing the songs, but you're also like painting a picture in your head of like uh, what it looked like, you know, where like you just kind of picture a bunch of guys like in a room playing. And I, I think that's so cool. But, you know, I, I've I've used studios from, you know, good friend of mine, Mike Collasian. Mm-hmm. He's had like eight or nine different studios over the years. And I've always followed him. He's like a fellow New York guy. A oh, great guy. I've, yeah, yeah. I've done records uh, out of John Aclario's studio. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rob Freeman studio. All, all, all great people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've kind of been fortunate to just like show up and rent out. And I think that also like kind of forces me to, I don't know. I've never, like, I, I don't have a studio to just like sit in and be comfortable in and, and sort of be templated with. Mm-hmm. Every time I show up somewhere, it's kind of like, oh God, like, okay, let me wrap my brain around it. And, and I feel like that kind of comes through. Nice. So what instruments do you play? I guess I consider myself a guitarist, although, you know, by necessity of being a producer, you know, I can play drums and bass. And I actually, early on, uh, studied, it's kind of silly, but I had studied 
trombone. I was actually like a, you know, I took per, like classical lessons mm. <laughs> and was going to go to school actually for performance. Wow. But, but yeah, no, I, I like to say I'm, I'm just a guitarist. So how involved in songwriting do you like to get when you're working with a band that's not your own? Typically, I, I don't like to get super involved with like writing songs. You know, I've been asked before, like whether or not I'd ever be interested in like co-writing music with people. For some reason, I, I don't know that I always feel like writing a song is like should be left to, to, an, you know, to the artist. Mm-hmm. That's not to say... You know, I really like being involved in like developing the songs, which kind of is like writing the song. But yeah, for the most part, I like to keep that like to the artist because that's really like the job of the artist is to, is to write a song. But, you know, like when I was doing this record for a band called Prawn, I had, mm-hmm. you know, a guitar on my lap nearly the entire time, you know, writing guitar parts with them and adding ideas. I love doing stuff like that, but I think I don't like to get super involved with with like writing full songs for people nice uh what do you think you bring to records most often i think you know kind of like what we were talking about earlier is i do my best to like bring a certain rawness and i I feel like that's kind of like a cliche like overused term that people kind of talk about nowadays but sort of the way that you go about recording music it's it's very sterile Mm -hmm. it can be very easy you know often like oftentimes you don't even need a drummer anywhere any you know more to have a good drum sounds uh or a bassist, you know, you can just kind of plug it in with superior drummer or something like Mm -hmm. that. But throughout that process, you lose the things that typically sound bad, but Mm -hmm. like that are awesome that make records for me. Mm, I agree. Like, like, I don't know the sound of like a guitar fret noise or, uh, the sound of like a drummer, like sitting in his stool, like getting ready Mm -hmm. to like take, you know, do a take. And a lot of times, like I'll like purposely inject those sort of things into records mm-hmm. <laughs> as a way to like remind you, like, hey, like this is a real thing with real people, and you know it's alive. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that's a very big diversion stream. Is that there's people who are wanting more of that, and then there's people who are like, oh, how can I make the computer play more of it? And it's it's a it's definitely a, a thing. I think emotionally, that does two very different things. And if you can bring out those little moments, I think it adds so much to a record, even though it's not something that's talked about a lot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you know, I was. It's funny. I was doing. I'm doing a record now with this band, Dry Jacket, from New Jersey. Okay, yeah, I totally know them. And we were, um, we were reamping the guitars. You know, I had you know a couple of different mics, close mics, aimed at the guitar cab, and then I always threw like a, throw like a room mic, like real far away, mm-hmm. and it sounds real crappy. But it's just like, it, you know, it wasn't until like halfway through tracking all the guitars that I had realized that like, there was like a snare drum in the room that had the snare still on, mm-hmm. and I was kind of like, oh man, that. That kind of stinks, but then I was like, you know what? That's kind of awesome because um, mm. it's sort of, you know, it's like a little reminder of like, hey, this is like a real guitar. This is a real guitar cab in a room, and it's sort of, I don't know, it bring, it sort of brings to life. You can picture in your head how like enormous the room was that we used to track in. Um, I just love those sort of those sort of things that are usually, you know, kind of cut out in Pro Tools, you know tab to transient and snipped out so <laughs> yes no I, I, I like that and I, I think that that is a thing of it's like being able to roll with that and know you're gonna be able to make it sound good is one of those things that I think is very val- valuable when it comes to making honest music yeah yeah it's 
it is hard. <laughs> it's hard convincing like a band like, no, 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 trust me, you should definitely leave that. It's real cool. Like it was a mistake, but you should leave it. <laughs> What's a common mistake you see bands do before getting to the studio? I think pretty common thing I see is when a band over prepares their songs or like, mm. you know, I know that sounds weird, uh, but like if you pre-pro a record and, and you demo everything and then you come into the studio overly attached to sort of the ways that you did mm. things previously kind of like puts a ceiling on your creativity. Mm -hmm. I've had bands that, you know, are, are super prepared. We're super nervous before coming to the studio and then like, you know, are very rigid and they're like, you know, it needs to sound kind of like how we did it that way. And that can be good and bad, but there can be a nice balance. Yeah. This is a funny thing because this is a reoccurring thing on this podcast is that somebody says not prepared enough and then somebody says too prepared the next episode. And I think there is a balance. I've been really thinking about how to give that advice to bands. Yeah. And I think like some of it almost is, is like that thing of like, you can't spend too long with those demos. Like it's okay to over prepare and like write a lot of things in some ways, but then you can't listen to that demo and over and over again. You can't get too precious with it. Don't slave over the mix. Don't get too used to it. Yeah, yeah. Because you're just going to lose that objectivity that can create a better thing. Yeah. Yeah. And and it's funny. If you can convince a band to, to over-prepare and, like, basically make their the entire record you want before going into the studio, but then, like, be as open-minded to changing it as possible, then, like, that's, like, the best-case scenario. <laughs> I think that's a great way of putting it, yes. Yeah. Um, you know, that doesn't always happen. <laughs> yes. Uh, well, I think it's that thing, it's too, is it's like, you know, that's a hard thing to teach people. Mm -hmm. And I also think, though, like, you know, when I think of some of the better artists I've been around, they have had that skill of that they do have a crazy extensive demo, but then when you're like, hey, you know what? This key sucks and we should change this whole course and rewrite the whole thing. They're like, cool, man, let's do it. Yeah, I think there's like a certain level of security, like, you know, confidence that is, you know, and security in like not, you know, like putting your guard down and, and not being super defensive about alternate ideas is hard. You know, mm -hmm. it's this record that I'm doing now with the Dry Jacket guys, they, they made the whole record pretty much themselves before they came into the studio. Hmm. But, you know, when it came to like guitar amps, guitars, uh, tones, they just were like so open. They're like, yeah, like we'll try everything, whatever sounds the best. And that's sort of like best case scenario. Nice. What's a smart thing you see bands do during the recording process? <laughs> this, is the, this is always the one that stubs everyone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, because it's funny. It's like we, you know, by saying what's the worst thing, you just kind of say the opposite of what we just talked about. Mm. Yeah, no, I know. The best thing is it's kind of like we were talking about, I guess, uh, uh, coming prepared, but just coming prepared with a, with a slew of ideas, but being ready to like start from the ground up again, because as a producer, like you'll, you'll be given demos and, and you can listen to it and you kind of have a frame of reference, but you're mm -hmm. still mentally starting from the ground all over again. Like you're going from the bottom up, whereas the band is not coming from that place. They're like, okay, we have to do this whole thing again, mm -hmm. oftentimes. So the bands have to be sort of re like willing to, to, to ride that with you as a producer. Like, you know, let's try out all these new things and, and you have to be open-minded to it. I like that. What happens when you and a band disagree about something? I'm pretty nice. <laughs> <laughs> you like see it? I think I'm a nice guy, but um, I'm not, you know, I think pretty early on you'll, you'll learn 
and I'm sure you, you definitely know what I'm talking about, you, you quickly figure out the kind of session that it's going to be. And I usually don't like to push it too hard. I find that as a producer, I'd rather, if, if there's something that I, I disagree about, I'd rather the artist be happy at the end of the day and me not be able to do something I wanted to do. I, I generally don't disagree over things like song, like their songs. If I don't like their song, I'm not, I don't know, I'm not going to try to rewrite it for them. But I, I will push on more technical things, especially like guitars. I get, when, when people come in with their own guitars that they're so attached to and they're just horribly intonated and they're not set up, like, I'll, I just won't record it, <laughs> you know. Yeah, so that, it, it, it is a thing. It's, it's a, that's a very hard battle sometimes because people are so, like, that's my sound. It's like, really, did you put that much effort into the getting that sound or did you walk into Guitar Center and that was the one that looked cool <laughs> on you? So now that's your sound. Yeah, and it's also just being, you become so attached to your sound and then it's hard to give that up. But yeah, I, when I was, I did a record, when Movie Mountains did a record with this producer, Matt Goldman, who's oh, like yeah, one of yeah, my all-time favorite producers. Amazing. He has, yeah, he, he's incredible. And he had so many guitars. Mm. And it was so cool. Like, I felt like I learned so much about, like, myself through trying so many different guitars. Mm. And I had been so used to just, like, single coil telly. I was like, that is what I use. That's always my thing. But yeah, just kind of breaking down that barrier to try new things was very helpful nice so let's get into how you feel about a couple of the modern production tools do amp simulators have a role in your productions not so much amp simulators i can't i guess okay it, it really depends on the record I, i've had i've done some heavier records where it's definitely worked i think amp simulation has come like such a far away mm -hmm. i just I, I have a hard time getting it to it to sit in a mix. And I'm sure there are guys that are so much better at me. I might be like purposely ignorant when it comes to this because I don't know, like what we were talking about before, I just feel like it it takes away a certain realness. Mm -hmm. But I, I, in sort of the more indie rock records that I, that I prefer to do, I just I have a hard time using amp simulators. I'll do it sometimes on like a clean guitar and, I, and I'll, I'll use like a amp effects, you know, like delay and stuff like that in, in Pro Tools or whatever. But in terms of like replace in, in replace of a real amp, I very rarely I very rarely do that. Gotcha. Uh, how about sample drums? Sample drums I like, but I I think that there's a misconception about how to use them properly, and I'm sure everyone has their way of, of I'm sure everyone's had this conversation, and everyone has a different way of, of going about it. But mm -hmm. I always I, I often use drum samples not to replace sort of the close mics. Mm -hmm. I'll use like uh, sort of room samples to reinforce like the impact of the room. Mm -hmm. You know, my favorite drum tones are always the ones that are super roomy and super big. And it's hard to get that sound by replacing close mic, you know, close mic drum signals. So I'll, I'll often like sample out a drum kit that I'm using. I don't really like to blend samples that weren't the original kit either. Mm -hmm. It never, it never sits right. It always, I don't know, you try matching, you know, a Black Beauty snare tuned to like C sharp with something mm -hmm. that wasn't that, it just doesn't ever fit. Yeah, it's definitely two different sets. But yeah, I'm, wi I'm with you. I actually like, you know, my whole thing every time is like, all right, we're going to do samples now. And they're like, why'd you take the mics off the close mic it's like well because i'm never going to use that close mic in the signal yeah i mean you don't all those other mics yeah because it's exactly it's it always sounds fake too you just have to i mean hopefully you're blessed with a, a good drummer 
that can that can play. Um, if you're not, then you know sometimes you got to resort to the close mic drum sample thing. But I, I've been fortunate for the most part that when I do use drum samples, it's usually to reinforce like the room. Like, cause I'm always battling cymbal bleed, not with close mics, but actually with like the overheads in the rooms. Mm -hmm. And so to, like, to sort of reinforce like the impact of the room, I'll blend in like the sound of like the snare just the, through the room mics. I think that sounds best. Nice. Do you have any favorite soft synths? Favorite soft synths? I use uh, that massive, I think Native Instruments mm -hmm. makes it. Yep. Uh, I use massive quite a bit. I'm a big fan of that. Come to think of it, I pretty much do everything through that. <laughs> nice. Uh, I've gotten like, yeah, you know, I, it's funny, like for a while I was like a plug-in hoarder and I just had so much stuff. And I, when I switched to Pro Tools 11, I think it was, mm -hmm. that was when I went to AAX. You really had like, you know, I probably shouldn't say this, but a lot of my plugins that were maybe not legally obtained mm -hmm. were, lo were lost in that process. Yes. Um, so I had to like really hunker down and be like, all right, what are the things that I 100% need to use? And let me sort of start there. And I, because of that, I've just always used Massive. Um, yeah, yeah I, 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 had, I had a very uh, similar process, so I, I totally understand. Yeah, you, it was nice, I think, about when uh, illegal plugins went away, you went, okay, now I don't have every tool in the world. I have to think about what I really want. And I think it actually really uh, helped my creativity by giving me some focus. Yeah, and uh, you know, I think Casey Bates is is, is a big guy. I, I've heard him talk about like not using the most expensive flashy plugins, but just like knowing sort of one plugin really, really well mm -hmm. has so much more value. Totally agree. I did a year where I didn't buy any new equipment, and uh, I chose to get to know my own equipment, and that was the biggest year of my growth. Mm -hmm. And I got my mixes went up as much as they usually go up in four years because of that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's funny how that works. And a lot of times, like you're overwhelmed with plugins, and you just kind of know like the preset that sounds good that mm -hmm. it comes with the plugin, but you don't really know what, what's happening. So yeah, I, I'm I agree with you on that. How about pitch correction? Yeah, I definitely use pitch correction. I think everyone uses pitch correction mostly as a way to help vocals sit in a mix, mm -hmm. not to fix a singer that can't sing. It's so hard to like get a vocal to just to sit like right in the sweet spot without having to tune it. At least in my experience, I don't know. Yeah, uh, right there uh, with you. Do you master your own records? I did for a little while, but I realized that like ultimately, like I'm just I'm not super great at it. You know, I do sometimes. Mm -hmm. A lot of times, I send my stuff to Mike Collision, mm -hmm. who I think is a phenomenal mastering engineer, and I've had a long working relationship with him. And what what I like about working with him is he knows how I mix mm. very well, very well, and having like a second set of ears to be like, hey, uh, I'm mastering this and, you know, I think it would sound better if you, you know, push the snare down 2 dBs. Like having that is very valuable to me. Mm -hmm. But I definitely have mastered a ton of records and it's something that I'm like, you know, learning to get better at. Gotcha. Yeah, I think that that's one of the things people often miss too is that like your relationship with your mastering engineer can be mean a lot more than going with the person that a label or a manager is pushing you to go with that you don't normally work with that, you know, the feedback and relationship and that person knowing how you work could really make a difference in the final product of a record. That's like usually my plug to bands too, is when they have like a mastering guy that they have in mind, I'm like, well, consider this, you know, I have a good relationship with this guy that I often go to. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, I think that the record will sound better ultimately because you're right. Yeah. It, that, that, 
that relationship is super important. So what is the musical bane of your existence? The musical bane of my existence. What, what, what do you hate the most in, in music? What do I hate? Oh, man. Um, I guess I don't really like, and this has been something that's always been the case even before my time, is, is like everything that goes into being a musician in a band without mm. the focus of music. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. And it's obvious to see. And you totally can, you know it right away when you see certain bands and, and you listen to certain records, you're kind of like, man, you are profiting and you are succeeding in a way that is hurting, you know, me as a musician and me as a, as a producer. And I wish you would just go away. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that stuff drives me crazy. Uh, I I I, un- I kn- know where you're going, and I understand. Yeah, I'm trying um, to be as like night. Nice. I'm trying to be as like broad. Vague as possible. Yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, that's like um, nothing new. That's like that's that's been yeah. around forever. What's a good lesson you've learned from another producer? Good lesson. Well, I've learned tons of technical things. I think w- w- I had a real cool moment when I was with Matt Goldman, seeing kind of how little post stuff he likes to do. He's really about like getting stuff sounding great from the source. But then at the end of the day, he's very like, you know, this is the song. And whether I spend five hours tuning the snare drum to sound good or not, like the song is still what's going to, you know, take this and be what it is. So it's like oftentimes if I'm like killing myself over a mix and the song is still kind of not there, it's like, Mm -hmm. well, what is that phrase? You know, you're, you're, polishing a turd <laughs> yes yes <laughs> i've definitely like learned not to like kill myself over mixes that where you know where the song isn't just good enough for it uh, that is a damn good lesson how long do you like to take to record a song and how long do you like to take to mix a song usually i'm pretty i'm pretty quick and i also have a habit of just like not stopping or like eating i'm I'm, i always tell the bands i'm working with like i'm making it your responsibility to take care of me because i just forget (laughs) i forget and and i just you know i work i go Mm -hmm. i don't like to take breaks i'm with you i go go to work and i just keep working yeah 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 it's it's bad but I, i just i don't like to stop but i you know because of that um i i can track pretty quick if, you know, so long as the band is is down with that, we did the the last Dry Jacket record in about a week and a half. We did about 11, mm. 11 songs, and you know the mixing thing. I'm not sure. I, you know, it always depends. Sometimes things just like fall into place, and it just works mm. out perfectly. But I, I don't. I'm not. I've always sort of been against charging hourly because mm. if I did that and there was infinite money in the world, I would be like a trillionaire. You know. Mm. I like to spend a lot of time, especially like late into the night working on mixes. So yeah, there's really no time frame on how long it takes me to do mixes. You know, I don't take forever, but you know, I definitely like to take my time. Tell me one of the best moments you've had in the studio. Best moments. I think some of like my favorite moments was, you know, early on with my, you know, my band Moving Mountains, like when we were first doing like our first, our first record. We actually recorded, we've recorded, so we've recorded or worked with in some capacity on every record with Mike Collision. Mm -hmm. He did drums for our first record, Numa, and I think this was before I like knew anything really about, I I could get away with recording stuff, but I didn't really know what I was doing. And sort of hearing 
our songs like actually sound good and come to life in like a new way was like really exciting for me. And I think a lot of like a lot of times like subconsciously like whenever I'm doing a record it's always sort of like to revisit that nostalgic feeling I had when like I was doing my first record. Ah, you know this is an interesting I was just having this discussion with a friend the other day that like we're you know, like psych- psychology, like you know, your your brain's always looking for that dopamine hit, mm-hmm. and then it's like really looking for that really good one. It got one time. Like we were like, I wonder if it really was just like that first moment that we really fell in love with here in a mix. That like we're just going back for that dopamine hit. We're just such bad addicts that it's now been twenty years. Yeah, no, I <laughs> I think it's true. I think it's like with with anything, you know, like food or mm-hmm. or, or anything else. But yeah, I think. At a, at, you know, at a young age, I had this experience uh, with, with recording music and playing music, and it's like you're always trying to go back <laughs> to revisit that. Nice. I like that a lot. Tell me one of the worst moments you've had and what you learned from it. One of the, it's funny, like one of some, of some of the best and also some of the worst experiences I had was actually so on the, the last Moving Mountains record. Mm-hmm. My, it's funny, my bad experiences and my good experiences in the studio often have to do where I'm also playing the music, I'm in the band and I'm recording it. But when I was doing the last, movie, most latest movie mountains full length was with Matt Goldman. And that was mm-hmm. the first time that I had ever you know, left New York, gone to a recording studio in a different state and worked full time with a producer that wasn't myself. And I had such a hard time like transitioning out of my normal habits and just be like a creative person, like simply worry about just the songs mm. and don't worry about like anything else. Um, that was really hard for me. I kind of learned how hard it is simply to be just like a musician. I've always like had the luxury of like being a musician, but also like being in complete control of like mm-hmm. what I, you know, I think of a song in my head and I'm like, I know exactly what I'm going to do to make that happen. But like, you know, I, I sort of had a new appreciation for people that are like just musicians that, you know, don't know exactly what goes into like creating what they want in their head. You know, because I was like sitting having to like explain to someone what I wanted versus just doing it. So that was really challenging, but you know, a good learning experience. Interesting. So let's get into some of your tasted uh, music. What's a perfect record someone else has made and what about it makes it perfect? Yeah, that's a real hard question. I think my like some of my favorite records are definitely the ones that, you know, that have longevity that you kind of listen to years later and, and find something mm-hmm. new that's, you know, cliche, but it's it really is true. No, I, to- I, I totally used, I, I I can never really say like what's my favorite record uh, if it's like from the last two years because I can't judge it until it's been years that I've been still enjoying it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I find that it's weird. Like recently, like I've, I've gone through this like new love for like some of the uh, Saves the Day records. Oh, nice. I feel like that record Daybreak in particular is just like a perfect mm-hmm. example of like a complete record. That's just perfect. I'm a, I'm a big big fan of, fan of that. That is, I mean, that, that's the thing is, is everything he does is it's just always so great. And uh, getting to watch him work when we did sound the alarm was just like he's a monster. Yeah, and, and it's like like it's obvious that like he writes good songs, but there are it's weird. Like they're the kind of stuff that like to like an average listener or maybe maybe that's someone that isn't super interested in music they'll be like okay these are like you know these are rock songs these these are catchy rock songs mm-hmm. but it's like i you know if you really dive into it like they're just there's like moments of brilliance in every song you know mm-hmm. 
Now, he, he has an understanding that's far above people, but is able to drill it down to something more simple. Yeah, and that's so hard to do. <laughs> mm-hmm. it, 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 you know, it really is that thing of like, I, I tell people all the time, it's like, you know, Chris is one of the most researched and like can name things about music more than anybody. And like when people are always like, oh, I don't listen to a lot of music. Oh, I love what Chris, I wish I was like that. It's like, well, you should study more music because that dude is a student. Yeah. Yeah. It's true. But yeah, so, so yeah, Daybreak is one of my favorite Saves the Day records. You know, it's fine. I would say the newest one, but it's just mm-hmm. so new that I feel, I mean, it's not so new. It came out, what, two years ago? Yeah, like two years ago. Yeah. And I love it. But it's like, I feel like it's against the rules. I feel like you have to wait five years before you can say a record's your favorite or not, you know? I I, I like that. I'm, I'm going to use that five year as the, the bench. I've been trying to figure that one out. I think I'm going to go with you on this five year mark. Yeah, I think five years is safe. But then I think back to how like long ago five years was, and it like wasn't that far away, and then I got freaked out. <laughs> that is the thing as we get older. <laughs> Tell me about five of your favorite records and how they shaped your musical growth through the years. Sure. Yeah, this is like the hardest question. So I, I went with mm-hmm. uh, Velveteen Elysium. Um, Velveteen is like, I feel very underappreciated, mm-hmm. sort of not super well known, but just phenomenal artists, not, you know. All encompassing like, artists on those records. Um, yeah, and they put out um, this one, that one record, Elysium, which was on like a lot of their other records. That's very piano driven and string, and I, I just fell in love with like the way it was orchestrated. So the Velveteen Elysium, I go with the album Leaf uh, in a safe place. That was one of the records that introduced that idea of like you know capturing room and mood and vibe, not just like a song, but just like putting a mic in a, a room and, and it giving you a feeling versus just a hook Do you remember who produced chorus. that record? I can't, can't remember it now. I'm pretty sure that it was actually done with Jonesy from Sigaros. Oh, interesting. That's right. I forgot that that, there, that was I a I can't thing. remember if it was In a Safe Place or if it was Into the Blue again, the, the record that came later, but I'm, I'm pretty sure it was In a Safe Place. But I mean, everything, like from him counting the songs in, you know, like accidentally with his breath is left in, like just all of those moments are left in. And it's primarily like electronic. And I, I just think it's so cool that you can have both of those things. So that record houses the, this record called The Quiet Darkness, which is kind of similar to the album Leaf in that it's like a very electronic record, but it's made up of oral organic instruments for the most part. So it's just like and, it, and I find it interesting because it's called Houses. And part of the story behind the record was it's, it's he made the record sort of nomadically like around various non-studio-like places. Like every song kind of was recorded somewhere else a bit. And I, I just think that's so cool. And it's like the opposite of sterile. It's like the most raw, yeah. organic. So yeah, Houses, they're all, these are all weird. <laughs> uh, I was going to say, yeah, this is one of the first times there's been a record on here that's not a metal record that I haven't heard of. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, it's funny. Like, I could just put all Saves the Day records, and mm-hmm. that would totally pass. Nice. Um, well, I guess, you know, so the Appleseed cast, they had, it's two records technically, but the Low Level Owl series one and two. Mm-hmm. That I heard those records, and I was like, okay, I'm going to start a band. And then, I, and then that's, you know, Movie Mountains. We made the first record, like, simply because I was like, all right, how do I do that? This band is so cool. 
you know, Ed Rose, the producer, is like the best. Yeah, he really was a master uh, when he was still doing records. And I'm pretty sure that th those records, I'm not positive, were tracked other than the vocals. Like they did that live. I, I think uh, you know. I remember the same thing. I remember I worked with a band that was really obsessed with those records, and that's why we did some of it live. Yeah, uh, and that's cool. I, I've never really done that mm -hmm. before, but I, I think that's just so cool. And then finally, I, there's a record by this group Hammock, and it's actually just two guys, and the, you know, it's just like ambience, delay, reverb, guitars. No, they're not even like quite songs. They're just like atmospheric moods. And it's just, I, I don't know. Guessing uh, the feels. I, yeah, the, 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 they have a really distinct uh, mood to their songs. My roommate is actually a uh, like new age uh, treatment masseuse and Reiki uh, pr practitioner. And she uh, uses them at all her sessions all day. Yeah, it, it's, yeah, definitely inspired me quite a bit, like tonally. Mm -hmm. No, very unique sound to that stuff. Yeah, they're awesome. Three favorite producers. Matt Goldman, <laughs> Ed Rose, who I've spoken both about a lot. Um, and, I, and I like Brad Wood a lot. Oh, nice. Yeah. I think he also kind of is similar in that, you know, he keeps his records pretty real. He did um, uh, that Catch for Us, The Foxes, That Me Without You record. Mm, yes. That I just, I just love. Mm. Both like as a record of songs, but also like as a, you know, production on that is so cool. Yeah, the performances on that record particularly just feel so locked in without it being a computer that locked it in. Yeah, yeah. What's your favorite record of recent times and what inspires you about it? Right at this very second, I've been really into Julian Baker. Mm -hmm. She's, I think, become pretty popular like in the last year. Yes. But yeah, her sprained ankle i think it came out what last year yeah i think like the like october november-ish yeah i have just been like obsessed with yeah it's a great record with what she's doing what i like about it so much too is like i feel like her story like or, you know how she came to be like is such a few and far between sort of thing nowadays where like i actually don't know so if you can give a quick word on it i'd love to hear yeah like well it, i just feel like nowadays like you know you can you can become an artist, you can become a band, and you can make a Twitter, MySpace, <laughs> yeah, yeah. MySpace Instagram, whatever. <laughs> you can just sort of instantly shove yourself in, in, in front of people. Whereas, you know, Julian Baker is sort of like, I mean, this is what I, how I understand of it to be. Like, she kind of made these songs in private and shared them, you know, amongst friends, you know, without major intentions of, of putting them out. So to like hear them, you when you listen to them, you almost feel like you're listening to something like that's that's like special and unique simply to you, almost in a way. Like it wasn't, it's so authentic and like genuine, and it's so like opposite of like what a lot of the music is nowadays of just like shoving it down your throat almost. Yes, you know, like like just. I don't know, screaming for attention and, and, and like trying to compete in sort of like this world of, you know, there's so many bands, there's the internet, it's just endless. So it's really hard to compete. Yeah, it, it, it is true. And it's amazing when something gets out that's not trying to compete. Yeah, something that almost happened accidentally in a way. Yeah, I remember the first Passion Pit record was a similar story, if I recall, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I just think that's so cool. And, and, and she's like super young, obviously like ridiculously talented and just like, lyrically just 
it, it's just really good. And it's just an acoustic, I mean, some songs are acoustic, but it's just an electric guitar and her. Of course, yeah. And it was like one of those things, like, you know, like I had a friend who's kind of a skeptic and he was like, ah, I don't know, it's probably the fucking computer. And it's like, yeah, watch that Tiny Desk concert and see. The tiny and tell Desk, yeah. Yep. Tell me that's the computer that made that record. Yeah, yeah, that NPR one and, and the, and the uh, Audio Tree one. Mm-hmm. It's like, it's like frightening how talented someone like is capable of being. <laughs> yeah. yeah, really, really cool. So the last question uh, I have for you is uh, what have you been working on lately? Mainly the dry jacket. I start mixing it tomorrow. I've been doing that. I've also been working on solo stuff for myself for the first time in a long while. But yeah, I think for the next, probably about the next two and a half weeks, uh, I'll just be mixing the dry jacket record. And that'll be, that's up for a hopeless sometime, uh, I think, in the fall. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember the golden rule of the internet. That if you enjoy something you got for free, please tweet, Facebook, share, or tell your friends about it in whatever way you like to do that. Please check out Noise Creator's website and take a look around. We have tons of interviews, discographies, Spotify playlists from all the best producers out there on our service. If you're unsure about who your band should work with, we can help you get the best producer fit for your record. To keep up with us, follow at Noise Creators on Twitter, Instagram, SoundCloud, Tumblr, or Facebook. This podcast can also be found wherever podcasts are found, including iTunes and Stitcher. I'm your host, Jesse Cannon. I can be found on Twitter at Jesse Cannon or at jessecannon.com. Again, please help spread the word about this podcast and what Noise Creators does so we can keep this going.